Well, last week we summarized Daniel chapter 7 in a single week, but that capped off four solid weeks through that particular book. This week, we're going to try to cover Daniel chapter 8 in a single sermon, and I think that actually can be accomplished without it being too challenging for a couple of reasons. First, uh, there is much more consensus on the meaning of the vision that is given in this particular passage, because as the angel in the second half of this chapter will say, the details are explained quite a bit more completely in the interpretation. Second, anything that we miss about the historical period this vision will represent will be covered again in chapter 11, where that same period of time is given much more particular details, okay? So if we don't get to it today, we will very likely get to it in chapter 11. So for those two reasons, I actually think we can make it all the way through chapter 8 in a single sermon, and it will still serve us quite well. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Daniel chapter 8. I want to give you a few notes as we get going, but begin by praying and then diving in. And for the sake of time in this sermon, rather than just reading through the entire 27 verses and then going back through and doing it again, I just want to pray for our time in the Word right now, uh, and then we'll go back through and, and pick apart a few verses at a time. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your Word today, as we read through this ancient text of Scripture that still has meaning for us today, I pray that we would consider it sacred, that we would love your Word, that we would want to be shaped by it. Help our viewpoints of eschatology, end times. Help our viewpoints of how Christians should live today. Help our personal heart's convictions about our sin life and the things we need to confess and grow in and where we need to conform to be more like your son. Help those things all to be served by the way that we approach this text, by how we trust what your word has to say. Father, thank you for the blessing of reading your word and trusting it. And we ask that we'd be able to revel in that in so doing, worship you as we read in Jesus' name. Amen. A few quick notes here on this particular text. Just as a reminder, the events of the second half of the book of Daniel describe visions that were revealed to Daniel in his life. But those visions in the second half of the book chronologically take place during the events of the first half of the book of Daniel. So Daniel as a book is not fully chronological from chapter 1 through 12. It's actually chronological from chapter 1 through 6. And then 7 through 12 are visions, kind of uh, Daniel's private diary on some of the things that he experienced as God revealed to him. Chapter 8, then, is going to be one of those visions. Daniel's previous vision that we covered in chapter 7 took us four weeks because it spanned the time frame from Daniel's life back in ancient Babylon, all the way to the final end. So it was a sweeping view of history. And in that single chapter, Daniel's vision tells us about thousands of years and the big picture events that we needed to know about it. The events in Daniel chapter 8 talk about a much more finite period of time. So in a span of a single chapter, we're going to get far more details about a finite period of time, as we're going to see as we get going here. Additionally, as a note, for those who've been watching and kind of looking at your footnotes, chapter 8 is where the Aramaic section of Daniel concludes. You might know that virtually all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, while the New Testament was written in Greek. 
But there are a few passages in the Old Testament and one giant chunk of the Old Testament that is written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, another language known to the people back then. And that is Daniel chapter 2 through chapter 7. And we just finished the Aramaic time. So all of my study through Aramaic and my getting uh, so perfectly fluent at it is for naught anymore because now we're back to Hebrew. But I think that now we're going to start seeing some language that we can more closely tie to other parts of the Old Testament. Starting in verses 1 through 2, let's see a little bit of Daniel's intro and setting. He says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. This vision, as Daniel describes, was revealed to him approximately two years after the vision in Daniel 7, still in the reign of that same uh, Babylonian king Belshazzar, but it's that time period. Daniel at that time lived in Babylon, but he says here that as part of the vision, there's some way in which he's kind of transported to see events taking place at Susa, the citadel, and this is 250 miles east of Babylon in what is now modern-day Iran. It was the then capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. That was where they were in Susa. And so now he's kind of transported in the vision. He's saying, listen, when I first saw this vision, this was the setting for it. I'm in Persian territory, the province of Elam, uh, the Ulai Canal. All of those features are true about a city he was not physically in at the time, but just saw in his vision. What follows next is what Daniel sees in the vision. So I'm going to read through verse 10. Because an angel is going to show up and give some very clear interpretation of these events in the second half of the chapter, we're going to read through a pretty decent chunk right now. I'm going to read through verses 3 through 10. It's going to be several slides long. But just follow with me and take note of the things that he sees in the vision, and we'll unpack after I read through this a little bit more sizable chunk, starting in verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. A little more to the vision, but let's go ahead and pause right there. 
because in the second half of this chapter, several angels will appear to give an interpretation of this vision for Daniel and for us. I'm not going to try to give any interpretation here. We'll just wait till we get there and let the angels say it. But for now, let's just consider some of the things that we saw as Daniel was repeating this vision. Some notable features. First, he describes two beasts, two animals. One a ram and the second a goat. The ram is described as having two horns, one higher than the other. And he ran about, and no beast could stand before him, as it says in verse 4. In his prime, this beast was unrivaled. But next, Daniel saw a goat. And this goat was rushing over the earth with such speed that he was not even touching the ground. He had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he crushed the ram. After the ram was put down, the goat became exceedingly great. But once he becomes strong, the great horn was broken and replaced by four other horns. Now, it's quite evident that the horns of this goat are of great importance in the vision, just as they were back in chapter 7. The horns are a key feature. A lot of time is spent talking about them. Out of one of those four horns grew another little horn, And it seems that the details surrounding the little horn are the point to which the whole vision culminates. So we're going to read that part a little slower here in the next few verses. Look with me at verse 11. It became great, this is that little horn, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So this little horn that comes out of one of those four becomes great. So great, is as great as the prince of the host. That language literally translated means ruler of the horde, or commander of the multitude. The regular burnt offering was taken away from the prince of the host. That's a reference to the temple, it sounds like. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. This language of the destruction leveled against the prince's sanctuary, followed by that statement you might have seen there, it will throw truth to the ground. This makes it very clear what is happening here is not good. This isn't foretold with moral ambiguity. This is a prophecy of evil times. So just in case there's any question, like, oh, it's just an interesting thing that's happening. No, what's being conveyed in this vision is bad stuff happening. That's supposed to be what's understood. The next two verses unpack even further. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So this is the end of Daniel's second vision. What follows is interpretation, and he's still kind of in the vision there to receive that. We'll get an explanation of it in just a moment. But this is the end of what Daniel was intended to see. This is the the end of the symbols that are being conveyed before his eyes that have apocalyptic meaning. And while you and I might have a bunch of questions about the details that have been stated here, Daniel most certainly would have more as the one who actually saw what was happening. But notice, notice, 
that the first question asked and answered does not come from Daniel, but from an angel, one of the holy ones speaking. That is very significant, and I want you to consider with me why it's significant. Because the angel here wants for Daniel and us to ask the pertinent question, how long will the trampling last? What will be the duration of the destruction prophesied here? And this is the main point of the vision. I want to zoom into this for a second because I try to make this clear every time we walk through a text together. There is a reason verses are in the Bible. There is a reason chapters are in the Bible. And oftentimes we'll get a whole bunch of very helpful and true things crammed into those passages and even individual verses. We also might get things like this that are very symbolic, whole bunch of features and details described, all of which have some significance, all of which have some meaning. They're not arbitrary. And so we could spend a lot of time picking them apart, but a major question we always need to ask whenever we read a passage of the Bible is, why is this here? And the angels here, by interrupting that vision, by asking the question, are indicating what we should be questioning about that vision. They're pointing into what matters most here. Even before Daniel hears the interpretation of any of the ram or the goat or the horns or what any of those details are, it is being revealed to him that this is what should concern him most. How long should the destruction last? And the answer given, 2,300 evenings and mornings. I do this all the time when I'm preaching. I've probably done this already in this sermon, not even realizing it, and I'm sure I'll do it again, even in this sermon, where I'll pause and then ask a question. I'm asking you the question that I want for you to be considering because an important point is about to be made. And that's what the angels do here. Next is an interlude, as we're not in the same symbol, kind of rich portion of the vision. Look with, look with me at verses 15 through 17. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is that interlude that's not exactly part of that vision, and we haven't yet gotten the interpretation. It's kind of what happens between those two parts. The vision has already been shown to Daniel, and the explanation is about to be offered, and Daniel says that he sought to understand it. Now, a couple of things. You'll notice that he says that the one who stood before him has the appearance of a man. Maybe not super surprising, but angels are described in a variety of ways in the Bible. Some of them have six wings covering parts of their body, feet and face, and still flying. Some of them have multiple faces, and some of them look like particular animals or beasts. It's very common throughout the Bible to see this. On one occasion, it looks like it's women talked about, an angel. Most of the time that an angel appears to and talks to a person, it has the appearance of a man. And that's what we see in this particular angel here. Stands before him and talks like a man, and he even refers to Daniel as a son of man. Did you see that in the last... Uh, last part of the sentence there. Understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. We won't spend a lot of time there because we, we visited this already back in chapter 7. 
But that term has been used once already in this book to refer to the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days in the vision that came before this. And I made the point there that that is trying to explain that a human figure was standing there. That was what was being conveyed. Here's the second time in the book of Daniel that this term is used, and it's referring to Daniel as a human. O Son of Man, O image bearer of God, O creature made by Him to be the one in dominion of this earth. The vision is for the time of the end. This angel speaks to Daniel as a son of man. Now, it might be a little bit interesting, at least, that Daniel has no dialogue here. No words are spoken by Daniel at all in this whole thing. In fact, he just falls down. He's, full, he's afraid. Uh, in the next verse, we're going to see, he looks like he literally faints out of fear in some kind of sense. And Daniel doesn't say anything. If we were to cast a, uh, a person to be in the role of Daniel to play out the scene in the movie, we wouldn't have to pay him very much because he doesn't have any lines. He's narrating what's happening, to be sure, but this is the angels speaking. They ask the questions for him. They answer the questions for him. And so Daniel here knows that an interpretation is demanded, and I think the angels know that as well. Without even being formally requested by Daniel to explain, they prepare to provide an explanation anyway. And who is the angel that appears to Daniel? None other than the angel Gabriel. He is the first named angel in the entirety of sacred scripture. And for the record, there are only two named angels, angels given specific proper names in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. And both of them show up in this chapter, in this text of the scripture, in Daniel. Gabriel, of course, is the famous angel that we will see again later in the Bible. His name means mighty man of God. And he will say later of himself that he stands in the presence of God. And he brings important correspondence, messages from the Lord, from God himself to his people. It is Gabriel, or at least another angel named Gabriel, who will show up in the New Testament who speaks to Zechariah to foretell John the Baptist being born by his wife Elizabeth. And this is the same Gabriel who stands before Mary and tells her that she will be the mother of Jesus Christ. It is that same Gabriel. I think we can agree that it's a good thing that Daniel responds in the way that he does. He doesn't doubt, he just believes. He's afraid, but he believes. That's a good thing, because the next time that Gabriel will show up and a man will not believe him, he strikes him with muteness to not be able to speak for nine months. But here, Daniel responds, I think, the way that one ought. He's afraid, he's concerned, he takes seriously what is being shown to him. And he says here, he's about to tell him something about the time of the end. This is the vision. Vision is for the time of the end. In the next two verses, I think he'll explain what he means by that. So look at verses 18 and 19. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. It appears here that Daniel is overwhelmed and he faints. But the angel wakes him up in order to give this interpretation. Hey, Dan, you're not done yet. Get up. There's something you need to know about this so you don't mix this up. And he says that the events foretold here will transpire at the latter end of the indignation. That's the appointed time of the end being referred to, both in verse uh, 17 before this and here in verse 19. The latter end of the indignation. So when Gabriel said that this vision is for the end, for the end... 
We ought not jump too quickly to the assumption that must refer to the final end, end of human history, the very last event that takes place. Instead, when we hear the end spoken of, we should ask the end of what? There are lots of ends in Scripture. There's the end of a period of judgment. There's an end of slavery for the people of God. There's an end of their wilderness wanderings. There's an end of their times of the kings. There's an end of their time in exile. There's an end of the destructions that will happen even coming in the future. And so when we hear the term the end, we should ask the question, as might be in Daniel's mind, end of what? And the answer given, the end of the indignation. The end of what he's about to tell them about right now. This is the end of a particular period of history that is referred to here as the indignation. That word just simply means rage or fury or wrath. It can also be interpreted as insolence, even curse. This time of wickedness and wrathfulness and fury that comes upon the people for some particular reason, as we'll see in a moment. Daniel chapter 11 will use the same phrase about a king who is prospering during his period of indignation. It says this about that king. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, until the end of that indignation. For what is decreed shall be done. You'll remember that the angels already made clear that the question they wanted for Daniel to be asking was, when will the devastation brought on by the little horn end? When will it end? That's the question that they seek to answer with this vision. That's the end being spoken of. And here's the interpretation of the vision, starting in verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So Gabriel gets right down to it. He wastes no time answering two of our biggest questions right out of the gate. What do the ram and the goat represent? He doesn't spend any uh, extra words, but simply says, the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. So if there's any question of which lens we should be looking at this text through, it is offered to us here. Last week I said uh, that there can be at least two very clear ways that people can view apocalyptic passages like this either through the lens of things being in the past. I expect, I'm looking through the preterist lens, the past-viewing lens, expecting these things have already happened. And the other side would be the futurist lens, expecting that these things are going to come in the future. And I explained there, you could break that out even into a few more categories. Here, the angel makes it very clear. Because the kings of Media and Persia are passed to us, and Greece are passed to us, he tells us these are the lenses to view this through for us. To be sure, these are future to Daniel, but they are past to us because we can pin them to history. This is why there's so much consensus on this passage because the angel just comes out and says, uh, it's Media, Persia, and Greece. Let's move on. Not a lot of room for argument for us here. Nevertheless, consider how short of an answer he gives about the ram. You saw how much detail he gave about him, running around and, and crashing, and no one could stop him. He had two horns. One was higher than the other, and it came up later than the other, and all this stuff. And yet, he says in a single sentence, the ram you saw with the two horns, those are the kings of Media and Persia. Next. And he moves on. This should be a clear clue to us that the ram is not the point of the vision. This is another, another example for us. There's meaning here. Those details have significance, but that's not why God showed this vision to Daniel. 
It was for something else. All right, Ram was media Persian. Got it. Okay, move on. That's the, let's get to what matters here and why that is being told to us. So let's just quickly look at a couple of those details so we're not missing what is so clearly laid out to us. This ram was great and powerful, and its day, in its day, no one could stand against it. It had dominion over its region. No one could fight against its power. It had two horns, one bigger than the other. You might remember that back in chapter 7, the second beast that comes out correlates with Media Persian Empire. Remember, what did we see there? We saw a bear coming out. Bear has two sides, and one side was raised up higher than the other side. And I made the point back then, the scholars have seen for a long time, uh, it correlates to what's going on here. Just like there were two parts to the Media and Persian empires, the Persian empire uh, part that would come after would be greater in dominance. Okay, and that's what's going on back there with the bear, one side raised up, and with the ram, Media Persia. Two parts, one comes after and is greater. In fact, if we were to go back to Daniel 2, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue, you might recall that the second kingdom after Babylon named there was Persia, Medo-Persian Empire, and it was the chest of silver and the two arms. Both arms are mentioned there, chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia. It's both of those things together. We see correlation throughout this whole book. But the goat represents Greece. Again, Greece would have been like that, that third beast from Daniel chapter 7. It says here that the great horn between his eyes is the first king. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. This first king is none other than Alexander the Great. Now, much more will be said about Alexander himself and those who follow after him in chapter 11. But here we get just a little bit more detail. Verse 22 tells us, As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And this is exactly what happened to Alexander the Great. He died at the age of 33 in 323 B.C. Prior to his death, he was the most victorious uh, general and military leader up till his day. Nothing could stop him. He moved with an army of 35,000 with such swiftness. It's probably why this particular goat says that he's rushing across the earth so fast he's not even touching the ground. That's the Alexander here, and yet he died young without any heirs to pass his kingdom to. So history tells us, you might remember, even from studying this as you were an elementary school student perhaps even, that his kingdom was broken up into four. It was quartered and given to four rulers who would come after him, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. But they would never have the power that Alexander wielded. They'd have quarters. They'd never have the full Greek empire. They'd never have the authority he had. He'd never have the austerity that he had or the military might or victory. This goat is the third beast from Daniel 7. And you'll remember back there, it was the leopard with the four wings, swiftness, and the four heads, these four heads, the four kingdoms arising. Continues on in verse 23 through 24. And at the latter end of their kingdom, those four leaders of the four uh, parts of Greece, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
Now, the great majority of Bible scholars are in agreement on this, that the identity of this king of boldface is the historical Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus Epiphanes. You might say Antiochus, depending on your pronunciation of him. He ruled in Jerusalem during the most devastating destruction the Jewish people in history ever had up to that point. He ruled over the Seleucid kingdom at the very end of the Greek empire. His rule was during 175 to 164 BC in that range of time. And the Romans would go on to conquer Greece less than two decades later. So he ruled in the latter end of their kingdom. He was one of the very last Greek rulers at that time. This text makes a few cases, uh, points about him. It says here that he's a king of bold face, not surprising by what you're going to see of him in a moment, uh, one who understands riddles, kind of funny language. Uh, that's the same language used of King Solomon, who was able to wisely discern great things in such a way that he could use his political maneuvering in powerful ways. We know that he was empowered by God to do that. Many people see that understanding of riddles being a political intrigue. He was able to solve those problems. He was cunning, as the next verse will say, and he was not able to be easily tricked. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. I don't know exactly what that means. That could mean that he built his kingdom on the backs of those who came before him, or perhaps there is demonic authority and power behind him, and both of those would be true. Not sure which particularly this line refers to. And he shall cause fearful destruction. And shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. All these things well fit with that historical figure. But even more so, what is said next about him in verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus Epiphanes was insane. He was a wicked ruler, known for his ruthlessness. He struck against the Jews in Jerusalem with ferocity, slaying a multitude of people, including women and children. In fact, on one particular occasion, he came into Jerusalem and under the pretense of peace, got a bunch of Jews together and then summarily had them executed. Without warning, he shall destroy many. I want to read for you a line from 2 Maccabees chapter 5. This is, this is a historical piece of literature, not canon, it's not in our Bibles, but this is a piece of literature that was written to tell us about the time period of that reign during Antiochus Epiphanes. A quick advertisement for Pastor Luke's study of intertestamental period. He's literally walking through these kinds of passages to help us understand historically what happened at this time. He'll most undoubtedly get into Second Mac Maccabees. Let me read this. When these happenings were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost. 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. That is unprecedented in Jewish history. Never up until this time had such an enormous destruction taken place to this many people. Even those dead in the earlier exiles didn't number what numbered this point. He will exalt himself. Rise up against the prince of princes, it says here. Rise up. 
He will exalt himself to the point that he will make great blasphemies against God himself. Now, while Daniel, from his perspective in history, living hundreds of years before Jesus Christ coming into the world and making it much clearer for us the triune nature of our God, he might have just seen this as warring against God, setting himself up against God in this way. While we might see a little clearer, that's probably a reference to Jesus' authority over his temple and his people there in Jerusalem. And this wicked king thought that he could land a blow against our perfect Christ. Antiochus was the first Seleucid king to refer to himself as manifest God, Theos Epiphanes. During that time, Antiochus even erected an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. He introduced ritual prostitution and even did the unthinkable, the abomination of offering an unclean pig as a sacrifice to Zeus in the temple precinct. This was dramatic wickedness in the eyes of these Jews. But it says of him that he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus died, not like so many of those who came before him and lived in his day, by assassination or death in battle. He actually died by sickness. And it was sickness of such an awful type that people saw the hand of God in that judgment. In fact, he, he, was, he was stricken in the bowels, and the history tells us that he was eaten by worms, and it lasted such a long time in his life uh, that it was such a torture that all that he could inflict on others was not nearly as much as what was inflicted upon him. It was said about him that the affliction was so bad that the stench of him repudiated even his own soldiers. At some point, his weakness was such that he fell out of a chariot and broke all of his arms and legs. His body was just useless, but he continued to live in a stretcher until he'd finally die, and people saw this kind of destruction on his body as judgment from God by no human hand. Clearly, God was judging this wicked leader. Verse 26 wraps up this part of the interpretation. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. All these things would happen many years after Daniel's day. Uh, more than three centuries would pass before these events would actually transpire. Of course, he says that this will be true. All the events and details described here are true. Gabriel wasn't trying to trick Daniel with a whole bunch of falsehoods and then one truth in there. When he says that this part of us, the vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true, what he's doing here is he's distinguishing between the highly symbolic parts of the vision with this important statement, which should be taken much more literally. Much more literally. There will not be a ram running around or a goat running around. There won't be any horns. Those are symbolic of something else that's real, actual human kingdoms and kings. But that number, 2,300, is significant and meaningful. It actually means what it is. It is true in that when I said 2300, I meant 2300. 2300 mornings and evenings will pass before the end of this period of destruction. I don't think 2300 evenings and mornings is at all a uh, figurative or symbolic language at all. In fact, we can calculate that in one of two ways. uh, Bible historians are kind of split on whether or not it should be referring to six and a third years or, or more cl- closer to the three-year mark. It kind of depends on whether you think that evenings and mornings are separate or together. The majority of scholars see that as together, and this referring to a period of about six years, four months, about that. 
And whether or not it's certainly precise, it could be rounded up or rounded down slightly. We do know that that period of history lasted just a little longer than six years of time. When the people of God were under this kind of dictatorship by this wicked king, when the temple sacrifices were not permitted, it took about 6.3 years of time. That's how long this went down. And I think that's most likely the case. So this grievous period of Antiochus's rule lasted from the fall of 170 B.C. to December of 164 B.C., which would be 6.3 years, or 2,300 evenings and mornings. Sounds like this is one of those places in even prophetic literature that's meant to be taken very specific, very, very clear. In fact, that period of time ends on a date that we, even up to this day in Jewish history and up until now, Jews still celebrate as the celebration of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. That was the final day in which the sacrifices were restored to the temple. Jews still around the world recognize that victory. And the last thing said to Daniel here is a command. He's given an imperative. This is what you should go do. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Seal up the vision. Ancient documents were sealed for their preservation. And that's what's in mind here. It's not like a close it so nobody knows. That same sealing language is used in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1. That we as believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit preserved for our future inheritance. It's not that we're made secret or hidden. No one will know if you're a Christian, if you have the Spirit in you. It's a secret. No, no, no. It's a, you are preserved for something in the future. And that's the meaning of this sealing here. Not a hidden. Don't, don't seal it up like no one is allowed to see it or know it. Lock it. It is to preserve. It's laminate this one because those coming after you, even many days from now, must know. A post-it note won't do. People need to know and that's exactly what Daniel did, because you and I are reading it this morning. One man given a vision, recorded it, and still to this day, many, many, many millions have read this. Chapter concludes with this final verse, 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel's overcome by this vision. It affected him so much that he was laid up in bed for days. Now, he was probably an old man by this point, perhaps more likely to have something overcome him that actually could physically make him ill. But Daniel didn't understand some things. He, he didn't have the foresight that we do by looking back, the hindsight, rather, in our day. We can look back and go, oh, we saw this in history. That's past. And so we don't worry about that particular judgment being stated here coming on us because we know that was something that happened then. Daniel knew it was coming ahead, and it affected him very much. I want to conclude our time today with just two points of application coming from this text that I hope we see quite clearly here. First, circles around this question. Why was this written? Why was this written? Why did this get put in the scripture. Why was this not as private for Daniel? Because God likes chatting with him. Why do we still have it today? Because God wanted Daniel and his readers to know what was going to happen. Super obvious. He wanted them to know. That's why God told them. So that he and those who would come after him would know. How fascinating to consider. God wants us, even today, as in Daniel's day, to know that these events written here were foretold. 
Why would he want that? To help his people trust in him when they need it the most. God knew that when these events would transpire, the people would need to be encouraged to persevere. And not only should they take courage because God knows what's coming. He knows what's going to take place. There's an expectation things are going to get difficult for you in the future. But also that he has fixed an end to that suffering. The time will be limited. It will not go on for forever. It will not endure to the end of days, but it will be cut off at some point. We get similar types of encouragements elsewhere in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 22, Jesus actually is pointing back to similar things in Daniel. He uses Daniel's language. He even refers to Daniel when he tells people about destruction that it will be coming in his day and beyond. But listen to how Jesus says this in verse 22. And if those days, those particular days of devastation, had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, that's God's people, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's a limit on them. Don't only be encouraged that God knows and is telling you what to expect, but also those days are numbered. They will not last for forever. You might remember that there's a famous scene in Revelation chapter 6 where in heaven, beneath the throne of God, there are the martyrs who've been beheaded for the kingdom, for the truth. And they are beneath the throne of God crying out to him, how long, O Lord, must we wait until you bring justice and judgment on this wicked earth? You remember what God says there? You remember what he, what he tells those saints, those martyred few? He speaks to them and says, give them a white robe. Clothe them and wait a little longer until the suffering has been complete. A little longer. It will not go on for forever. God does not go, this is just the way of things. Forever and ever and ever there will be martyrs. Deal with it. A little longer and judgment will come. Justice will be fulfilled. All of our suffering, all of it, will have an end to be sure. In the final analysis, at the point of final judgment, all will be complete. But even through history, even in those time periods and specific locations and times in history, God offers relief from the most intense periods of suffering. Holocausts end. This is the way that God works. For the relief of his saints, for the elect of his days, those will be cut short. This is again a reminder of a similar sense there will be a time coming ahead of you, Daniel. People will be enduring this kind of persecution. Even the temple of God itself will be under destruction, under this type of control, and yet that time will come to an end. The indignation will be complete, and it'll be cut off. Remember back in chapter 27? Chapter, chapter 7, rather, I'm sorry, the, the previous chapter? In that vision that was given there, we were told multiple times that the little horn there, the king then, will make war on the saints. He will prevail over them. He will wear them out, seeking to change the times and seasons and the law. And what does it say? Every time that that kind of statement is made, immediately following, we are reminded that it will be a limited time. Time, times, and half a time, it says there in this cryptic, indefinite period of time. But the point is that it is limited. No matter what we have to endure in this life, those trials have an end. And the finite time for our suffering is always compared with the infinite time of our everlasting joy in heaven. 
This is a benevolent endeavor for Christians to share the gospel with other people because we want them to enjoy in the eternity of heaven as well. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this is the arc of history. God works all things for his glory and for our joy, the joy of those who believe in him. And you may have had to deal with intense periods of suffering. And you may know other people who've dealt with intense periods of suffering. And we've all heard the charge against God. Well, how can God be good if he allows bad things to happen? How can God be all-powerful if he allows bad things to happen? The Bible tells us time and time and time and time and time again that there will be limited periods of suffering of all different varieties of intensities, but all of them will have an end. But eternity will not. Whatever you and I must face today pale in comparison to just how long eternity is and the perfections there. And only then, with that sight, out of this body, no longer chained by our own sin and our wickedness, will we finally experience and understand and be able to look at history and go, oh, that was so finite, that was so short. We know this. How many adults here have tried to share some level of counseling or advice to a younger man or woman, maybe someone in high school age, teenage kind of years, you try to explain, listen, I know this seems so huge to you right now. I'm telling you, this is so small. I know it feels so big, but really, this is one year. They go, one year? That's an eternity. No, one year goes by in a blink, really. Someday you're going to understand. Even in a human sense, you'll understand years go quickly, don't we? How much more so when we are standing in eternity? If you're not a believer today, we want that for you. We want for you to join in with us in eternity, beyond this finite suffering, because in the end, there are only two options, eternity, infinite, separated from God, and torment and destruction, or with God, and blessings and peace. And we want for you to have the blessing and peace with him for forever, praising his mighty name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the only way you get there, only way, is to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Believe in him. Because he died on a cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of everyone who will believe. So all of us in heaven for all of eternity will say the only reason we're here is not because we've done good, because we stopped doing bad, because we stubbornly just made ourselves do the right things, but because Jesus did perfect. And he gave his life for us. And he raised from the dead, and we too can, if we believe in him. If you're not a believer today, you need to do that. You need to confess your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Talk to any Christian around you today. We want to help you to have that as well. God is at work in history. He's working, as he always has. We saw at the beginning of Daniel, God is the one who called Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, equipped, gifted, gave him the power to come and be judgment against Israel and its wickedness. It is God who is the one who in Isaiah 45 says of Persia, I will bring the king of Persia and make him go all over the land. He will be that ram that is so powerful with the two horns that no one can stand against in his day. Why? Not because God's observing it, but because God said, I will do it. I will bring this to bear. God is the one who works all things in history for his purposes, but he doesn't only do this in a sovereign sense. That's, that's not the main point I'm making here, but that God does it over large periods of time, periods that our little minds oftentimes struggle to consider. Daniel cared a great deal about what was coming next in history. You realize that, don't you? I saw that in the last verse. He, literally, he was physically ill hearing about what was coming ahead in history. 
Even though it would be long after his time. It's many days from now, Daniel. Daniel's counting the clock. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm towards the end of my days. Uh, there's a few other things in history that are supposed to happen. Until that happens, it's going to be a long way off. Seal this up for somebody else. At least I don't have to deal with it. And there have been even Israelite kings in the past who said those kind of things. <laughs> At least I don't have to deal with it, so I'm just going to enjoy my days. Daniel operated differently, though, didn't he? I think it'd be wise for us to think similarly, to care like he did. In fact, for Christians today to have little or no care of what people in the future will have to endure is extreme selfishness and even conceit. You are not the center of the universe. And while it is right and natural to give the predominant attention to the things in your own life, that's what you've been been designed to aim at and to effort towards, to disregard how what we do today will affect people in our future is the height of vanity and arrogance. It is fascinating to me how people in the Bible thought about these things, especially in light of how we tend to think today. So often people in the Bible will put their stake in the ground and begin an endeavor that wouldn't end for two, three, four, five hundred years. They would start a work with the expectation it would be completed by their great, 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 great grandkids. And they thought differently. They planned differently. They expected differently. And it seems in many cases they were happy to operate in the little slot of time that the Lord had given them so they could pass something to those who would come after them. I think that there is a major problem in thinking. In American Christians today, in our modern Western Christianity, that we think so often that we are in the final generation or two of human history. If you've heard me talk about end times before, you know I hammer on this. I, I try to bring this up because virtually every Christian generation in history thought they were the last one. Virtually all of them. And all of them were wrong. All of them. We must learn from our past. We must learn from our brothers and sisters and be slow to go, well, we have to be the last ones. Clearly, it can't get worse than this. As we stand here in the heating and electricity while I'm preaching live on Facebook to all the people around with impunity, brothers and sisters, it can get much worse. Much, 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 much worse. And for us to stand and think, well, we're the last ones, do you not think that that will have an effect on how a Christian community thinks about our future? If you don't believe you're ever even going to have great-grandchildren, how will that not dramatically impact the way that you live life today? I had Christians ask me, why does eschatology really matter? Listen, I, I, I grant it is not first-order stuff. I grant that. I also grant there's tons of details that you could invest tons of your energy in that, sure, might not have immediate impact on your life. But if 80, 90% of American Christians think we're the last generation... I promise you, what that will produce is Christians retreating from culture, is Christians turning over schools and arts and entertainment and government and everything else to the world. And that's exactly what has happened. We're the last ones. Why, I mean, Jesus will be back any minute now. Might as well, I mean, why, do, why, why invest too much energy here? But if we're planning for 200, 300, 1,000 years from now, we won't be swayed by that faulty thinking you know, in the EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, I used to be an EFCA pastor back in Illinois for seven years before moving out here. Wonderful denomination, many wonderful people there. But there was a time in the 1800s when the EFCA church, many of their individual congregations, had such a 
high view and a disproportionate view of imminence that Jesus could return at any time that they refused to send their pastors to seminary. Well, he, Jesus might return in the next two to four years. We wouldn't want them to waste their time learning the Bible because their doctrine of imminence, how quickly Jesus will return any second, trumped the responsibility to lay a foundation of work that will last for generations. And that was a problem. I think that the 24-hour news cycle in our day is a great enemy to the Christian mind. It seeks to drag us down into the nitty-gritty details of every possible worthless scandal in the world in order to keep our attention. You do know, don't you, that mainstream media outlets that produce these kinds of materials are businesses. And the only way they make money is if they capture your attention. That's how that works. We put so much into those things. Social media, I think, is even worse. I think that social media does far more harm in the minds and lives of believers than so many of us realize. Because it's not just highlighting the scandals of the big names that everyone knows. It's every detail about every person's life that you've known since you were born, what they ate yesterday, where they're going tomorrow, what they went on vacation, every little detail. And that keeps us in the immediate. It keeps us right here. It doesn't permit us to zoom out and to consider the thousands of years of history and where we line up and why God has us here in this particular time. It's a danger, and we must keep our minds focused. These things can atrophy the mind. They dull our senses. They steal our focus from more important and eternal things. And Christians, we must be marked by our thinking about things more important. You and I should care greatly about what will happen after our lifetime, even two or three hundred years from now. If God were to tell you what was going to happen two or three hundred years from now, would that change how you live? If we were to receive a very clear and specific statement about what we'll expect coming in the future, would that change how we live? If you knew that your great-great-grandchildren would endure an intense period of persecution, how would you live differently today? How would you raise your kids and grandkids and if you lived to see them great-grandkids today? How would that change your perspective? Have you ever considered simple math? If you were to have three kids, and they were each to get married and have three kids, in five generations, that, that's, that's far less than 200 years. That's 60,000 plus people. Did you, did you, we, we missed those numbers. Five generations. Great, great, great grandkids. 60,000. It's larger than the population of South Jordan. What you do today, how you raise your kids, what you invest your energies and times in matter. Tens of thousands, and all, you guys have a calculator. Just extrapolate that out for a, another century or two, and you hit, you hit tens and tens and hundreds and millions. Tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions. We do know some things that will happen. If Jesus does not return inside of the next two or 300 years, there will be suffering and tribulation, and there will be victories. Far worse in every category than we're experiencing. And for the record, irrespective of your personal eschatological view today, all of us know that's coming, especially for you post-mill guys out there who are like, ah, oh, it's going to get better. Every, even the post-mill guys, you know it's going to get worse before it gets better. Everybody knows that. So there will be times ahead of us that are far worse than what you and I are experiencing in this exact moment. And to care about our future kingdom-building efforts, we must invest 
our lives into eternal things. And this necessarily means you need to gut the things out of your life that have no genuine lasting value. This can be tricky because the color of your socks you wear today will likely have no effect on your great-great-grandkids. And yet, you still have to choose which ones to buy and when to wear them. And There's a certain level of attention you're going to have to give to temporal things. And that's incidental. But we should be very careful to not give a disproportionate amount of our attention to those temporary things. Brothers and sisters, I'd encourage you to read the Old Testament. Pound through texts of the Old, Old Testament. This is so helpful. Listen, of course read the New Testament. But did you know that the entirety of the New Testament takes place in a single lifetime? One lifetime? But the Old Testament spans thousands and thousands of years. I'm reading through 1 Kings right now in my personal time, just kind of going through it. I'm just amazed at how in a single paragraph it'll go, so this one king comes about, lives his life, doom, he's gone. Whoa, 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 whoa. 60 years, like that. And there's one, this guy must have done 100 things as a king, and one, one statement made about him. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Or he did what was right in the eyes of his Lord, like his father David did before. Those are the options. He did what was evil, or he did what was right. Giant swaths of history covered by just a few words. What would our history look like? What would the story arc of your life look like? What impact will it have on the kingdom? For evil or for good? I think about this all the time because we're in the throes of trying to get a building for a church. And uh, it's challenging, as you know, all the detailed challenges. Uh, my family, in my household, we think about and talk about it every single day. I mean, it's, we have to like, try to shut it down and go, no talking about it today as it dominates the mind. And why? Because we want something that's going to outlast us. We want to plan on something that's bigger and farther and beyond us. And we could just go, who cares? Let's just do stuff and figure out what happens. No, we want to think about the future. We want to, we want to try to plan for what's coming down the pipeline. We want to do things and make decisions today that will positively affect our great-great-great-grandchildren. And that's what's in mind. It's what makes these kinds of decisions especially challenging. This last week, I even heard a podcast on sacred architecture. There's a bunch of Christian guys talking about how churches have been built throughout the, uh, the centuries. And one of the things that they said that was really challenging to think is that there have been many local gatherings of Christians, local churches over history, over the course of history, who invested 200 years in building their buildings. Put that on for a second. When they first drew up their plans and brought them all together and said, let's do it. They knew that by the end of their lifetime, the stones on that literal physical property would be waist high. And it would be up to their great, great, great grandkids to finally put the roof on. Can you imagine how that changes the way you think about your progeny, your kids, and those who come after you? To start a project you are absolutely certain will never, ever, ever be finished in your lifetime or the lifetime of your great-grandkids. That's, can you imagine what that does to your mind? When that's how you're thinking? I'm building something that's going to be here for thousands of years. And I'm okay if I only see waist-high stones when I get to my deathbed. I feel like Christians have lost that long view. We become church hoppers. Every four years, we go to the next place because the amenities are better or somebody offended me at the last place. We don't commit. This is why we constantly appeal. And as a, as a church here and as a pastor, I constantly say this to people. Find a church. I don't care if it's here. You need to find a church that loves the Lord, is going to guard your soul, and invest in that church. 
for the next 50 years of your life, unless you move somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, we've got to reclaim that kind of long-suffering view that so many believers had before us, and we want it microwaved. We've got to solve this problem, brothers and sisters. We need to train our kids. We need to prepare our homes for a 200-year kingdom-building effort. Disciple your kids to know the Lord. Take their Bible training seriously. Think about what you want to leave your kids someday, materially, as an inheritance, immaterial and material. How do you today want to fund your great-grandchildren's missionary projects? When Christians think like that, we have an entirely different mindset in mind. This is why the pastors here are so eager to encourage you to seek ways. Take advantage of Christian education for your kids. We are constantly trying to encourage you to this. Why? Because we want the long-term impact in mind. One off Christian might go like, well, in my situation, with all the variables, I might be able to make it work where my kids aren't totally taken over by the world. You might be the special case, but we as believers must rescue our kids back into discipleship under the Lord and not in the world. And this is why we constantly try to encourage that. We've got to effort towards that. Once again, this is a challenge to you with the younger children to find a way to prioritize Christian education for your kids. We have to challenge the default American view on this. Christians in history never thought this way until us. And we're upside down on so much, don't trust us. Look at what the world has become. If you don't have children, this might be the point where you go, oh, check out until the end of the paragraph and then we're talking about general Christian things again. No. If you do not have children, you're single or married without kids, you are needed to pour into the next generation as well. Try this on for a second. I'm willing to bet if you're a single Christian here today and the Lord doesn't have in the future for you to get married, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be the last single Christian in the history of the world. And if you don't have kids, I'm willing to bet that you and your family, you're not the last Christians in history who won't have kids. In other words... Everyone else who has kids, some of them are going to be single. And some of them aren't going to have kids. And they're going to need believers who went before them to model and disciple how a Christian life looks. How you leverage your moments and your time and your resources and all that you do as a God-honoring single man or woman. As a God-honoring couple that doesn't have their own children. Show the next generation how to do it with active discipling and even modeling. And lastly, prioritize your relationships for those that will have the greatest, lasting, long-term impact. Find a squad, Brother Aaron says, a group. Get real. Don't waste time talking about the frivolous stuff. Find the kinds of people that you actually can confess sins to. Challenge when they're wrong. Be admonished when you need it. Encourage one another that you will share everything in your life with. And use the Bible to do that. And this Christian life takes time. Sanctification takes time. We can't microwave those relationships. They're worth investing energy and finding those trustworthy brothers and sisters. It is such a joy to find. We need to remember, God's people outlived Babylon. And they outlived Persia. And they outlived Greece and Rome. And they outlived all the dominant cultures of the East and the West. And, um, and Christians will outlive America to the point that faithful believers will be raising up and building the kingdom long after they have any idea what red, white, and blue represent. And as Christians, we need to remember that that's how God works in history. Let's pray.
Father, we trust and love you and are grateful for your word. We need to be encouraged to zoom out. The world would be thrilled. The demonic forces in the world, literally spiritual forces in the world, even just wicked worldliness, humanity, would love to take all of our attention, to rob all of our affections from you, from our kingdom-building plan, from the great commission given to us by your your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray that you'd help us to regain such a big picture view that we don't panic when the day-in, day-out events take place. We know there's a finite, limited time we'll have to struggle and work our way through this period of strife. And Lord, in the end, we have an eternity with you and all of it will be worth it. Help us to think like this, different than the world. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.